Thanks for listening to Bullseye. I want to tell you about a new way to get the news every morning. Up first is the morning news podcast from NPR. Give them 10 minutes or so, you get a sense of the stories and big ideas of the day. Politics, science, the economy, and some culture, too. What you really need to know, why it matters. Start your day with Up First, weekday mornings by 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Chris Gethard is a comedian. He hosts The Chris Gethard Show. He acts a bit. He's the kind of dude who isn't afraid to lay everything out on the table. Like on his TV show, he'll do an hour of TV based on one gimmick, and if it doesn't work, he'll talk about how it failed. If he's going through some stuff, he'll make it part of his act on stage. Addiction, relationships, anxiety, even his psych meds. Like one of the things that was very heartwarming for me was in the course of the show, I have all stretch where I talk about the side effects of different medications that I've been on. And uh, on certain nights, there would be people who would um, sometimes a comedian will go out and say like, like mention Toledo. And then the people from Toledo start clapping. I'm in a situation where I mention Wellbutrin and the other Wellbutrin (laughs) takers start clapping. And that's like the perfect example of something where I'm like, this feels cool. Like people are actually like cheering for it. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Chris about his new one-man show, Career Suicide. He'll also tell me why he thinks there's no worse fate for a comic than just being okay. I want to fall on my face. I want people to watch me get caught. I want people to watch me just get blindsided by the failure of my own idea. I want to either succeed big or fail hard. Then I'll talk with author George Saunders. His latest book is the novel Lincoln in the Bardo. It's his first. The novel is about the anguish of a world after death, but Saunders genuinely believes that it's important to, I don't know, be fun? You go into a party and you're either fun and you cheer people up or you're a drag and you bring people down. The former's better somehow. Even even if everybody in the party, you know, is dead a week later, <laughs> so somehow the, the positive energy is actually a tangible thing. Plus, DJ Jazzy Jeff, the DJ Jazzy Jeff, tells us about the song that changed his life. It's a good song, too. Finally, I'll tell you about why Paul Simon's Graceland, the perfect album for middle age. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is Chris Gethard. For six years, he's been the host of The Chris Gethard Show. It started out on New York City Public Access. Later on, it moved to Fusion. You might have also seen him on Broad City or in Don't Think Twice, the Mike Birbiglia movie that came out last year. Chris is also a stand-up. His latest special is sort of a mix of stand-up special and one-man show. It's called Career Suicide. Gethard produced it with Judd Apatow. It'll debut on HBO Saturday, May 6th. In Career Suicide, Gethard talks really specifically about alcoholism, depression, death. But he does it in ways that are totally human, really identifiable, very funny. Here's a clip from the show. Here he's talking about his early days in show business, running from audition to audition to get bit parts and commercials. I get acting. I start getting acting work. I'm getting mostly commercials, mostly commercials. If you search my name on YouTube, 
to this day, you go deep enough in the search results, you can still find a very annoying commercial for H&R Block where I wear later hosen. Can you find that? <laughs> and I once auditioned for a Subway sandwich commercial to play the role of man who is unattractive to women. <laughs> That was the character's name in the script. They couldn't even call him Doug or something like that. I didn't book that part, I'm assuming, because... <laughs> Chris Gathard, welcome back to Bullseye. It's good to see you. Great to see you, too. So your new special or one-man show, whatever you want to call it, is called Career Suicide. It's largely about your mental health. Do you feel exhausted by talking about your mental <laughs> health? You know what I mean? 100%. Yeah. One of the great things about the special coming out is that maybe I can talk about I can stop. <laughs> everything I have to say about it is in that special. And when I get asked about it, I can just uh, tell people, you know, find it on all your uh, HBO-driven streaming platforms from this point <laughs> forward because that's really what I have to say about it. Because um, it has been many years of talking about it in some form or another. And, and definitely, it's exhausting. And doing the show, more exhausting than I thought, for sure. It feels like part of what you're doing in the special and also in your memoir, which was the last time you were on the show, I think, is in writing about it and in performing about it, you are talking yourself into engaging with it fully. Yeah, I think that's a very astute observation. I think there's like definitely a part of me that knows that if it's not hidden, it has less power over me. If it's not something I'm trying to, you know, overcome quietly in private, then other people might actually help. And there's something to be said too for, you know, anytime I anytime I put it out there and, and other people respond to it, like sometimes people, you know, people have seen the show and they'll wait afterwards and they'll say, oh, like I really identify with that. Thank you for saying that. It rang true. And that's really nice, but it's also that goes in my direction too. Like it's nice for me to feel less alone. And uh, there's there's certain jokes in the show that anytime they get a laugh, I'm like, okay, I'm. Oh, that other people feel that. Great, good, good. So yeah, it's a. What's an example of that kind of joke? Like one of the things that was very heartwarming for me was in the course of the show, I have all stretch where I talk about the side effects of different medications that I've been on, and uh, it, it, on certain nights. There would be people who would um, sometimes a comedian will go out and say like like mention Toledo and then the people from Toledo start clapping. I'm in a situation where I mention Wellbutrin and the other Wellbutrin <laughs> takers start clapping and that's like the perfect example of something where I'm like this feels cool like I've set up an environment where this is okay to put not just put out there when it's not always okay to put out there but like people are actually like cheering for it and they understand why that's funny. And that makes me feel connected to them. And we're getting, this is in a section about how brutal side effects can be and we're connecting in this way. It, it was very much a, an asset to me as well in those moments. But that's a, that's a challenge and a burden as well. I mean, it's not, it, it may be different for you, but I know that in my experience, when people share something like that about themselves with you on the basis of your performance, it is an incredible gift that means a lot. But it is also a hard thing to shoulder sometimes. Yeah, and 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 it's it's one of those things that's a real double edged sword in the sense of a big part of why I'm 
putting on the show is because this was so hard for me to talk about. And I have that in my head of like, I, I just want to really put on a funny show. But maybe if someone sees it and they find it easier to talk about, that's great. Maybe someone sees it and talks to their kid a little more freely. That's great. Like those are, I, I want to make the show that I wish I had when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and, and didn't have an outlet that would spur this conversation. Like I'm, I'm psyched about that at the same time. I'm also, this is real for me and I'm not always emotionally equipped to take on more. And there's times where people tell me things that are very personal or scary or dark and it, it, it fills up. You know, I've had like people wait for me after the show to tell me about times that they've, they've hurt themselves or people in their lives who, who are gone now. Like, and that's, it's, it's, makes me feel great that I've created something where people feel like they can air this stuff out, get it off their chest, but it's also very hard. Do you feel like if you could cross out your condition from your life, you would? I think I would. If I could go back, I th I think I would, but you know what's it's interesting. My a few years ago, I got I got open up the mail one day. And I had a letter from my mom, and it was a handwritten letter that she mailed me, like the actual U.S. Postal Service. And, you know, th this is not a thing that happens so often anymore. So immediately I was like, what, what is this? And I read it, and it was this – clearly my mom had put a lot of uh, thought into it. And uh, it, it was this letter where she, she basically said, you know, I've thought a lot about your stuff and your childhood and – you know, some of the things that you and your brother dealt with. And she's like, for a long time, I felt a lot of guilt and, and wondered if I should have done some things differently. But now you're older and I see your work and I see that there's a lot of young people who are, are getting a lot out of it. And, and it's, she's like, I have to say, like, I wouldn't take it back because I see who you've turned into and what you've done with it. And I think it's a, uh, I think you're you're helping some kids out there. As you can imagine, that was a very emotional experience for me to read that. As far as I go, though, yeah, I'd probably <laughs> I'd probably change it <laughs> if I could go back and not have to deal with some of the stuff I dealt with, for sure. But my mom had that perspective on it, which was both nice to read and also very intense, very heartbreaking. <laughs> me personally, though, if I could go back to 1991, 1992, and just flip a switch and not have to deal with it, probably. Probably. <laughs> I gotta, let's play a clip from my guest Chris Gathard's television show, The Chris Gathard Show, because it, it's – I don't know if you could say anything is representative of the show because a lot of things happen. <laughs> but you have uh, Paul Shear and Jason Mantzoukas, two very brilliant uh, comic actors on the show, especially brilliant improvisers. Um, who I'm sure you've probably known 15 or 20 yeah. years from the Upright Citizens Brigade world. And on this episode of the show, two two things are going on. One is you've brought a dumpster onto the show. Yeah. And the plan is to investigate what's in the dumpster. Yeah. The second thing that's going on in the show is that you, you're making clear that you do not have further plans for the show. So if the dumpster thing doesn't pan out, the stakes are... There's nothing else to have to, to have happen. There's no plan B. Yeah. So let's take a listen. Welcome to the Chris Gethard Show. I'm very, very happy because we're about to do, I think, the dumbest show we've done in years. <laughs> we brought our dumpster into the studio, and you guys are going to have a chance to uh, guess what's in there. We're asking you guys to call in, Skype in, 
You can take a guess, and that's the whole show. That's it. I'm gonna tell you a couple things about this. One, if you don't guess, I'm wheeling this thing out of here and you never get to see it. And two, if you guess right away, we have no backup plan. No backup plan at all. And I love that this already feels like a late night UCB show circa 2001. Because my old oh. friends, Paul Shear and Jason Mezucas are here, ladies and gentlemen. This is the theory I wanted to give you, is that to some extent, the format of your show feels like an institutionalization of your mania, which is to say (laughs) that you have found a way to have the absurd commitment to terrible ideas that comes from mania that is, from uh, what I've been told and what's been described to me, totally amazing feeling. Yeah, yeah without necessarily specifically having to be in a manic state. <laughs> yes. Well, I certainly... It's funny because, you know, I certainly, as an artist, I don't think making art has sorted out my issues in any way. Therapy and medication <laughs> have done that. But I do think the art became a healthy way to direct some stuff that wasn't always healthy. I think there's certainly a type of endorphin or adrenaline that I clearly need in my head and uh, it's better for it to happen over the airwaves in in a way that's intentional than to let it just set in day to day. So yeah, I think I think your 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 observations are correct for sure. <laughs> it is bad ideas. Like when we started the Gethard Show at UCB before public access, I started every show by saying, "I want this to go well. I've put a lot of thought into it. I really genuinely hope it goes well. But if it doesn't, my promise to you." is that the disastrous uh, other potential outcome will be as entertaining as if it went well. Like, if we crash and burn, you're going to love watching that, probably more than you will if this even goes well. That's always been an attitude that I stand by. One of the things you talk about in your special show, Career Suicide, is the extent to which you had linked your emotional health to your career, this presumption that if your career was successful that you would be emotionally healthy because of that. Yeah. Um, Two-part question. Do you feel differently about that now, or are you able to feel differently about that? The second part is, do you think you would feel comfortable doing work in your career that was good work but not capital G, capital W, good works? You know what I mean? Like, just if you were, like, if you got cast on as the second guy in a funny sitcom and you were doing a good job of that. Yeah. And the sitcom wasn't evil, but neither was it a place for teenagers to come out. Right, right. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, guided by this sense of urgency or uh, the chip on its shoulder that my work clearly has now. It's, <laughs> it, it, like I'm definitely a workaholic. It's a problem. It's probably like one of the biggest things I still wrap my head around is that I get caught too caught up in career stuff. You know, a lot of that is that there's the anxiety that it could all go away tomorrow, which it could getting better about that you know have a little bit more stability than i've ever had before that's a nice feeling but it still is this thing i have to remind myself of i always had this feeling of like uh you know like if if i can just get one of those big jobs everybody will have to notice it and they'll have to admit that i was right going for this and they'll have to admit that i have what it takes which presupposed that there were all these people doubting me which was not really true like 
I had this chip on my shoulder about proving everybody wrong, and then I would accomplish certain things, and I wouldn't feel that validation. I had to kind of admit, and, and cop to the fact of like that there is no them that I can prove wrong, and then there will be this victory. Like something's going on inside. I actually once witnessed it was at ASCAT in New York backstage at UCB. And there was a friend of mine who was a cast member on SNL talking with a friend of mine who was a correspondent on The Daily Show. And they were stressing so hard. Man, I don't know what's going on. Am I going to get, what's my next gig? Blah, blah, blah. I might have to move across the country. And they were so stressed. And I was like, man, I always figured if I got one of those jobs, I'd be happy. You're in The Daily Show. You're on SNL. You've reached the mountaintop. Now you can kick back because you've proven everything you need to prove. And I was like, oh, if they're still so stressed out, I have no hope. So I better just learn to enjoy the things I do because getting stuff is not going to fix any of my problems. As far as like, could I, you know, could I settle in and really enjoy it if I was doing something that was maybe a little more square than some of the, or standard, you could say, some of the stuff I've done? I don't know. Like, I mean, you could be for, you could be on the next 30 Rock. 30 Rock's the funniest show. It's a know, great show. There's more funniness in that show than there isn't, but it's feel, not about it's not about much more than being funny. I mean, it's about some other thing. Yeah. I'm not trying to diminish Thirty Rock, one of my favorite shows of all time. Of course, but it doesn't have that fire in its gut trying to prove something. Right. <laughs> it doesn't have this mission statement of trying to like break the system and yeah. sneak in the back door. I feel like I probably could. I imagine, you know, I, I think hard about it because there's there's a part of me that's also like if something like that were to happen, like I don't think anybody's going to doubt that I tried at this point. You know, <laughs> nobody's doubting my integrity or my indie credibility at this point. Like, I think anyone who knows my work would say that guy spent years bending over backwards to try to do this thing, and at times he was the only one who knew why he kept going. At times, I had visibly quit, and other people, fans or other people working on the show, would convince me to keep going. So there's a part of me that's like, at a certain point, I've done my part, and maybe I could move on and just do something. I'm sure I'd find some side project very quickly to um, push the buttons that fuel a lot of my, my mischief. One of the things that makes me want to keep accomplishing stuff is, you know, you see people in this industry who eventually get to a point where they can produce other people's work. And I'm not quite there yet, but I would love to be because I, I feel like one of the things I have going right now is I remember what it was like for me seven, eight, nine, ten years ago when nobody was particularly interested and I had to just like kick down some doors and make it happen for myself. I'd love to find the comedians who are in that spot and help them not have to spend half a decade on public access TV to make it happen. So that's another thing is like, Maybe if I was to get one of those bigger jobs, that could give me that credibility, and then it could bring some other stuff into the world. But who knows? I don't know. I'll sell out someday. Everybody does, right? Who knows? We'll have more with Chris Gethard after a quick break. He'll tell me about how after years of his star being on the rise, he still has time to get in fights with his fans on the Internet. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Economic Development Authority of Fairfax County, Virginia. Here's President and CEO Jerry Gordon discussing how business can succeed in the country. 
Fairfax County is really a place where people can succeed and businesses can succeed regardless of where they came from, regardless of their background. All it requires is ability, perhaps a little bit of luck, and a great deal of tenacity, and you can be successful in Fairfax County. More information at fairfaxcountyeda.org. Summer movie season gets louder and longer every year. I'm Linda Holmes. For a guide through the blockbusters you know about and the surprise bright spots you might not, Pop Culture Happy Hour has you covered. We'll tell you what we're looking forward to, what we're secretly dreading, and what might just sneak up on all of us. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in the studio with Chris Gethard. A comedian, actor, host of Fusion's The Chris Gethard Show. His latest work, a one-man show called Career Suicide, premieres May 6th on HBO. A friend of mine was telling me this past week, he has a friend who sold a company for $65 million. And he said this to me as a kind of warning. He said, my friend sold his company for $65 million. Now (laughs) all he does is make bad art. And I was like... It's the dream. Make bad art? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in. That's all I'm I've, already making bad art. That's what I've been doing for years. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's <laughs> not really getting paid that well for it. Yeah. You just... I certainly don't have $65 million for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to find a market for my bad art. That's perfect. Yeah. It is funny, though, talking about the idea of like moving on. It's, you know, the Gethard Show. When I talk about the Gethard Show, for years, that has been my people. And they're still my people. They're punk kids. They're weirdos. They're artists. A lot of them are queer. A lot of them are doing things their own way. You know, a lot of them, either by choice or by necessity, are people who have walked their own path, and they find this, and it's like, oh, this is a community of people who've walked their own path. It's a beautiful thing. I'm very, very proud of it. Those are my people. But it's funny. They are so DIY that, like, I get the sense online sometimes. I'm really in tune with these people. This past week, I was in a fight with my own fan club online. They banned, they shut, they stopped comments on my post in the Facebook group that's my fan club, the Gethheads. And I was honestly mad about it. And they were like, we don't care. We're shutting you down. Like, I have this contentious relationship. And I get the sense sometimes that, like, they are such underground people and so passionate about the values of that, that me being in Mike Birbiglia's movie is a little bit of a sellout move. <laughs> A beautiful anonymous podcast. A podcast. They're like, you're getting a little too mainstream for us, buddy. And there's almost like a countercultural element to the Gethard show where I have to grow and I have to evolve. And I'm in a, it's a very fascinating thing to realize. I don't know if they want me to. And that's a very odd feeling. It's a very odd feeling. I can feel them being happy for me, but I can also feel I can feel a lot of my older school fans feeling like, man, like he's really uh, he's really growing up and moving on. And I don't know exactly how to handle that because I feel like that's what I've always been working towards is trying to get a better head on my shoulders. It's weird. I don't know how to go. I'm heading, you know, especially thinking about HBO, like that's a more that's a bigger platform than I've ever had. Yeah, Judd Apatow's name before you're yeah, it's on like top of your credits. Pretty fancy stuff. How much longer can I claim to be this rebel trying to uh, throw rocks from the outside the house, you know? I don't know how much longer people are going to buy that. But I don't really know what else I am. 
are you worried that you're not going to get get the Tonight Show and you're going to have to move to CBS and enlarge the band? Oh my God, that play would to be, a bigger theater. I could follow that man's life. That would be. Maybe they, I often. I don't know. I just read a biography <laughs> of that man. Oh yeah, his life sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, frankly, I, mean, frank, I can only talk about what I what I have witnessed as a consumer of pop culture. Oh yeah, the Seems greatest like the genius dream. ever. Yeah, of yeah, course. the most brilliant out of the box genius. Um, a kid certainly can't. <laughs> he doesn't vouch. seem thrilled about it. Though. No, as far as the things you read about the actual um, loneliness of that pursuit, <laughs> yeah. doesn't seem great. But I, I think a lot about if he would be proud of the Chris Gethard show. That's like a major concern of mine is like if footage of this ever went across David Letterman's desk, would he be psyched? Because in my mind, a lot of what's behind it is not talking bad about anybody, but late night just used to be a lot weirder, I think. It just used to be weirder. He was weird. Conan still is weird. Even Carson had a lot of weird stuff on there. There used to be this element to it where it would get a little chaotic or unpredicted. And now, in my opinion, seems much more controlled. And that's okay. But I want my show to be an hour of just that. Letterman used to sometimes just, like, get a permit to shut down the block so he could pour 10,000 rubber balls off the roof of his studio onto the street. And that was it. No thought about it beyond that. Let's just send the guy into the deli across the street with a camera so I can talk to the deli guy. No planning beyond that. We're not scripting what Rupert the deli man has to say. Certainly, you know, let's let's bring Harvey Picar on and just get in an actual fight. Let's have Jerry Lawler slap Andy Kaufman across the face. These unplanned chaotic moments um, that Letterman in particular, I think, nailed is to me, that's always been my height of comedy. And I think the Chris Gethard show is an effort for me to go, can we just do a full hour that's just that stuff? Well, you seem to be obsessed with the genuine sense of danger of that, the genuine sense that failure is at hand. Yeah. Because fil- Letterman lives, lived in, there was a long time uh-huh. when Letterman's greatest pleasure was to marinate in failure with a dumb smile on his face. I love it so much. And to me, it's not even like I think failure's funny. I mean, I do. I think failure is one of the funniest things in the world. <laughs> but there's also something really necessary about it. And there's something so fun about surviving failure. That's like... With my background as an improviser, one of my favorite things in the world was when an improv show would happen and I would feel, I would go, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what anybody's talking about, but I'm surviving. The audience doesn't even realize that I don't know what's up. And I think the same thing with my talk show of like, and the podcast, the podcast also tweet out a phone number, whatever call comes in, they get to talk for an hour. I just have to deal with it. Like there's a big part of me that feels like. When I succeed, I want to succeed in huge fashion, surprising fashion that nobody saw coming. That dumpster episode, not to be cocky, but like I think Vulture put out an article saying that was the best hour of TV they saw all year. I'm like, to have an episode as dumb as Guess What's in Our Dumpster and then like a a publication I respect saying something about it, I want to succeed that big off the dumbest idea. But if I don't succeed that big, I want to fail so hard. I want to fall on my face. I want people to watch me get caught. I want people to watch me just get blindsided by the failure of my own idea. I don't want a safety net because I think that's more interesting to watch for the consumer. What I never, ever want is to land in a safe middle ground where you plan it so meticulously and you understand what you have so much that you can't take chances beyond that. I never want to get to a place ever in my career with any work I do where I'm reasonably sure it's going to end well, and then it ends reasonably well. I want to either succeed big or fail hard, 
I think both of those are more fun and interesting, both for myself and the consumer of comedy, than a safe middle ground. I just never want to land in that middle ground. Chris, thank you so much for coming back on Bullseye. Thanks. Sorry I rambled and ranted so much. Not in the slightest. Chris Gethard's new special of his uh, one-man show is on HBO, and uh, a second season is coming of his television show, The Chris Gethard Show, which is also, incidentally, like the eighth season, Yeah. depending on how you, whether or not you count the many years that he did it for free on public <laughs> access television. <laughs> Thanks again, Chris. Thanks. I hope that was okay. It was great. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jeffrey Towns. He's a DJ, record producer, and actor from Philadelphia. But you probably know him better as DJ Jazzy Jeff, the producer and collaborator to Will Smith's Fresh Prince. If you're my age, there's no better way to channel 1990s nostalgia than putting on a perfect track like Summertime. Drums, please! Slightly transformed Just a bit of a break from the norm Just a little something to break the monotony Of all that hardcore dance That has gotten to be a little bit out of control It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that suits The Fresh Prince went on to become, you know, Will Smith Jeff, for his part, became one of the most respected DJs and producers in hip-hop He was instrumental in the careers of The Roots, Jill Scott, Talib Kweli, Eminem, and more He's also a solo artist. He's recorded a handful of albums over the years. He's got a brand new project released just a couple months ago. It's called Chasing Goosebumps. It's a collaborative record. Jeff teamed up with the soul singer Glenn Lewis and a bunch of other musicians for it. In his home studio, they wrote, produced, and recorded the album in just seven days. Here's a track from the new record. It's called This Could Be Us. As a kid, growing up in Philly in the late 70s, Jazzy Jeff remembers the song that changed his life. Not just Knee Deep by Funkadelic. He doesn't just remember the song, actually. He remembers the exact moment it dropped. The first time I heard Parliament Funkadelic Knee Deep, they were talking about debuting the single on the radio in Philadelphia. It was on a station, WDAS, um, and he talked about it all day. And in the summer... One of the guys that got me into DJing, his name was Mark Johnson, lived right across the street from me. He would bring this big giant speaker out on a porch and just play music all summer. So, and he had it on to WDAS and he kept talking about they were going to debut it, they were going to debut it. And he had his cassette deck ready. And as soon as it came on, he recorded it. I just remember sitting on my steps listening to this song in its entirety, the the whole 15-minute version of it, and just being mesmerized. (laughs) 
Funkadelic was was huge to me. Growing up in the block party era, uh, especially pre-hip-hop, all we listened to was funk and soul. So as soon as as soon as anything dropped from them, you were at the store trying to buy it. You were, you know, hand on the pause button, you know, trying to record it, you know, so that you could play it over and over before you went to the store and you bought it. Never missing a beat, yeah. You know, there were there were key moments when when you're at a party when somebody throws that record on, you either needed to be the DJ or you needed to make sure that you had someone to dance because if not, there was going to be the longest 15 minutes of your life. Hearing this song took me through a lot of different emotions. This was early on when me just figuring out that this is something that I wanted to do. It made me start investigating uh, instruments. I wasn't formally trained or anything, but I wanted to know every instrument on this record. I knew this wasn't a a live bass. My brother played live bass, and I knew this was a synthesizer bass, but I didn't know what synthesizer. And as you've gotten older, you start looking like, oh my God, you know, that was a memory move, or that was a mini move, and you know, I hear Arp string ensemble in the background. You know, you be you become obsessed with these sounds. This is very reminiscent, you know, coming out of the disco era, the song still had some tempo, but it had some funk. It was a lot of synthesizers in this song you weren't used to really hearing. Someone was was playing a Brazilian instrument, the cuica, on the song, which I always was attracted to and didn't know what it was. A cuica is a little drum that has a stick in it that you basically wet a little napkin or your fingertips, and when you move it up and down, it gives it that They had the best Quika player I've ever heard in my life in this record. No, I've never heard this kind of an instrument in in a in a funk song. You know, in a Brazilian song maybe, but not in a funk song. You know, it has a little, you know, sadness to it. It has some hauntingness with the with the ooze in the background. The, the, the hook that they're saying, the Freak of the Week, they're singing that like they're an opera choir, you know? The the level of influence that they pull, I think I want to do that. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something like that. You know, you have this rock element that just drives you fanatical with the guitar. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, I read that they would not wash until they finished the album. So I'm pretty sure that the funk was real on multiple levels on this record. (laughs) 
I think listening to this song now, being a lot more mature, you hear different things and understand different things. You have different stories behind it. You know, you you know a, more about the composer. You know more about the musicians. Um, you know more about the sounds. But it still gives you goosebumps when you listen to it. Um, even with the knowledge that you know, like you know, I didn't say sometimes you don't want to see behind the curtain because you'll be a little bit disappointed. I'm still mesmerized. I, I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall to see these guys in this room creating this. You know, I wanted to know what 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 were you thinking? It took you on a ride. It took you, you know, and I think that's that was one of the times that I got tapped on the shoulder to understand that the power of music is to take you places without you ever leaving your headphones or in front of your speakers. But I think what I enjoyed more than more than that was the fact that Mark Johnson taped it and as soon as the next song came on he rewound the tape and played it over again. <laughs> DJ Jazzy Jeff with a song that changed his life. Knee Deep by Funkadelic. You can get Jeff's latest release on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you buy records. It's called Chasing Goosebumps. And guess what? Jeff and Will Smith are reuniting. They've got two festival gigs coming up later this summer. They're in Croatia and the UK. So, I don't know. I guess book your plane tickets? Anyway, let's hear one more song off Jeff's new album. It's called Take My Time. Hello. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is George Saunders. You know, you meet a lot of amazing people in my job. Some of them sort of stand above. George Saunders has been on our show a few times now. He's one of those people. Somebody I genuinely admire, personally as well as in his work. He's a writer. His short stories have appeared in The New Yorker, in GQ, McSweeney's, everywhere else. His 2013 book, a short story collection called The Tenth of December, was a finalist for the National Book Award. He also won a MacArthur Genius Grant. His latest is called Lincoln in the Bardo. It's his first novel ever. Like a lot of his work, it's pretty funny. But where his other stories often focused on the absurdity of consumerism, Lincoln in the Bardo goes back to the 19th century. It's almost historical fiction. Central to the book is the true story of Willie Lincoln, Abraham's son. He died when he was just 11 years old. The night he was buried... Lincoln returned to his son's crypt and held his lifeless body. Saunders' book takes place in the world between that death and the next life. It's like an oral history of voices from beyond the grave, voices that Willie Lincoln encounters on his journey to the afterlife. It's a moving, strange, tragic story. George Saunders here with me now. Welcome back to Bullseye. Always great to have you here. Good to be back, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Um, this is like a real weird question to start an interview with, but it was the honest one that I was thinking about when I was reading uh, your new book. Are you afraid of death? Hell yeah. Yeah, I am. You? Oh, super afraid of death. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny? No, I'm, somebody said, no, I'm not. Not really. No. 
doesn't bother me. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I know people who aren't afraid of death. They say. Mm, my wife is not afraid of death. And my wife well, is a real straight shooter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think if your understanding is correct, you probably wouldn't be as scared. But, but if you're like me and you're kind of, you know, fond of yourself and then, <laughs> you know, then I, and a control freak, I think it would be. I had, I had, I think we talked about it last time, but I had a near plane wreck back in 2000 that kind of disabused me of any idea that I was, you know, okay with that. I don't think we did talk about that. What what happened? Well, it was just, there was, what it turns out was that there was uh, some geese flew into the engine of this flight as we were leaving Chicago and it took the one engine out. So the symptom of that was that it, the, it was just like somebody drove a minivan into the side of the thing and then black smoke started coming out of those overhead air things and people were screaming and, and I, you know, I'm from Chicago, so I kind of know the grid and we were getting really, we were dropping really fast and, and as far as I could tell, O'Hare was behind us and we were going down. And uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I thought, you know, like I always imagine I'd be the guy who would stand up and say, everybody, let's join in a moment of gratitude. We've had beautiful lives here and let's sing Kumbaya. But that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't what was happening. You know, and I joke about it now, but it really was just like a, uh, the internal monologue was just like, no, 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 no. And kind of like negotiating. Let me let me, you know, turn time back and get out of the plane. And then also this sense like... Uh, geez, you know, I, I actually have to get out of this body now, of, of which I'm so fond. And uh, and then it's that seat right in front of me that's going to do the job, you know, that kind of thing. It's really hard to deal with stuff like that that you do not have control over and that there is not an answer to. Well, it makes you realize, I mean, it made me realize how much I'm on autopilot a lot of the time, just kind of like assuming you know, continued good health, continued mental stability, continued success. You know, you. in other words, I'm a pretty nice guy if all those things are in place. But, <laughs> you know, you take one away and suddenly you're whining, whining screaming baby. <laughs> it's like that um, engineering thing, which is uh, fast, cheap, good, pick two. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can't have it all. As soon no, as something's no. wrong, the thing that's going to fall away is <laughs> happy niceness. Is it something that you think about? Yeah, I do. I mean, I do. I I think it's healthy. You know, I think that it's actually it's a it can be um, a spur to not be lazy. You know, not be slothful. Uh, and you know, in other words, if you do if you do build up a uh, an addiction to all those easy comforts, which I think we all do, just you know, it's kind of, I guess it would be productive to every so often just become aware of those those cheats that you've built into your life and, uh, you know, to kind of turn your mind towards death is a good way to do it. I, I mean, that's, this book was a four-year thing where every day you were in there kind of, I mean, in some ways you were just being a craftsperson and making good scenes and all that. But underneath it all, that was really the what, what was going on was a chance every day to kind of go, oh, yeah, death. I remember that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is George Saunders. His debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, is out now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like my tool to escape existential dread has been, since I've been an adult, that I have to make a show every week. Yeah. Right? Like, it's inescapable. It's either I make a show that week or, you know, there's dead air, right? Yeah. And well, I mean, that's something, yeah. No, sorry. Oh, what I was going to say is, like, I feel like when I consider death, it has the opposite reaction. It 
encourages slothfulness because it makes me wonder why I've dedicated so much of my life to making a show every week and whether that's even a, a useful goal. Well, right, and that, not, I know just what you're talking about because for me, the when I was younger, the uh, you know making books was somehow. I mean, it wasn't that I thought it would um, spare me from death or illness, but it somehow it kind of did feel that way. It felt like, all right, yes, death is coming, but in the meantime, I'm going to do this thing. And somehow embedded in that was the idea that if I did it well enough, I would get a pass, you know, or maybe if I did it well enough, I would be so happy and content that it would be easier to die or something like that. And of course, the pisser is you get to this stage of life where, you know, I've written a number of books, had a lot of success, probably more than I deserve. And the horizon is just getting closer. You know, it's not, it doesn't, it's actually not a a way of getting out of that. But on the other side of that, I've had times where I've been kind of like, well, why am I writing books? Maybe I just won't. And then I just get depressed, you know. And if you get depressed, it really sucks. And you don't, and you become uh, not powerful and you become mopey and you become a pain to be around. So in a sense, it's like if you were taking this medicine every day of doing art and it actually made you a better person and easier to get along with, it would be kind of irresponsible to not take it. That, that's kind of where I am right now. Or, you know, to say it in a more positive way, you, you've got this thing that you love to do that actually demonstrably increases your engagement, increases your energy. So you'd be kind of kind of dumb not to do it, I guess. It's funny. I'm, I'm in a stage of life where I think two things are true, and they, they might seem to contradict. But one is that, you know, at some level, nothing permanently matters. I mean, you, you know, you do good work and it has uh, sort of a nice ripple effect and it makes people happy and that but all that you know including the people that you made happy through your work they go away so none of this stuff is is um carved in stone and certainly if you if you position yourself as I did when I was young to think if I can only be really a great writer then I'll endure that's kind of that I don't think that's true actually so that's one side of it the other side of it it's really kind of uh, it feels to me really wonderful to make energy in the world. It, like just as a thing in itself, you know, to um, to do something well is pleasurable. So that maybe even those temporary little energy waves that you make are actually really wonderful. They're really important. And they, that might be all we have. I mean, you go into a party and you're either fun and you cheer people up or you're a drag and you bring people down. The former's better somehow. Even even if everybody in the party, you know, is dead a week later, <laughs> so somehow the, the positive energy is actually a tangible thing. More of my talk with George Saunders after a break. He'll tell me about what he thinks is the most important part of writing a good book. Don't insult the reader. Seriously. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Little Passports. Check out Science Expeditions, the new educational subscription that kids and parents love. Monthly packages arrive packed with activities and experiments about science, technology, engineering, and math, with themes like rockets and solar power. In the first month, your child will extract DNA from a strawberry while learning about forensic science. Learn more at littlepassports.com bullseye and save 40% on your first month with the coupon code bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with the great George Saunders in just a second. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket. Pop Rocket is Bullseye's sister show. It's a panel discussion brought to you by some of the funniest, smartest people thinking about pop culture today. We have a very special guest host for this week's episode, our friend Margaret Wappler. Hey, Margaret, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? 
Hey, Jesse, this week we're talking about Handmaid's Tale, which just premiered on Hulu. It's based on Margaret Atwood's famous dystopian novel from the 80s, and it is really brilliant and compelling. Sounds awesome. Pop Rocket. Get it where you get your podcasts. Catch up now. Don't get left behind. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is George Saunders. His debut novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, is out now. There are less jokes in this book. Yes. There are jokes in this book. There's a fair amount of pooping, for example. But um, less jokes. And I think for a lot of people who have a facility with jokes, jokes are the first place they go when things get tough. Yes. Is that sure. your personal inclination? Yes. Yeah. If there's, I mean, if there's any self doubt, then the jokes come in, or or sometimes I'll just get really stiff and formal, <laughs> and and then being in that mode for a while, I I can't stand it, and I go into a joke. So yeah, no, definitely. Was it hard not to do that? Um, yeah. It, I mean, it it was until you the first time you did it and it <laughs> up the book. You know, like you get you're getting an emotional uh, emotional scene going with in this graveyard and something actually you know, for me, new is happening in terms of the emotional intensity. And then you get a little insecure and you drop in a joke. It, it kind of, it just feels like a betrayal of the material. So, you, you know what I, I came to think about was, because I, I definitely was conflicted over that. And I, I had the worry that you would have, which is, am I going to alienate people who like my other stuff? Is this going to be some kind of one of those, you know, mid to late life earnestness things where whatever was wonderful in the early work goes away? You were basically worried that you were going to make Billy Crystal's one-man show. No, I, I didn't. I haven't seen that. But I mean, you know, there, there's this long, you know, in, in any artist you love, there's a place where they get too much on top of their material, maybe. And, and I think it's a it's a kind of a valid thing. I mean, you get to this point in life, and suddenly you realize that your artistic years are not infinite, and that you know all the great masters who are, who have worked over the centuries. That when you're 19, you'll just assume you'll overtake you realize you're not even in the same hallway yet. So there's a certain urgency. And, and if you're like me and if your early work is comic, you know, and fart infested, you, you might think, hmm, I better, you know, I better take on the big questions. So, but here's the thing that, that was interesting to me. I remember thinking about this, like, okay, how do I get more humor into this book? And the answer I came up with is maybe you redefine what humor is or you, you come to a different understanding of humor. Humor is not actually jokes. Jokes are one department of humor. But I came to think that humor is actually a subcategory of what we'll call wit. And what I mean by that is you're, you're writing a scene and you're on page 42. All right. So wit, fictive wit, I think actually means that when I'm on page 42 writing that and you're on page 42 reading it, part of my job is to precisely be able to imagine where you are. Like what are the boxes that are open in your mind? What are you expecting? What are you dreading? down to the micron level. So what that means is we're basically in a motorcycle in a very tight sidecar. So wit means I remember what I've already told you. I remember what the characters look like. I remember where they're standing. I remember when the last time they spoke, all that kind of stuff. Then when I just go a little bit to the right and you lean with me, that's the ultimate fictive moment. Now that's you can see that in, in a form of a joke for sure. You, you put a duck in the room and two pages later, the duck makes a noise at a funny moment. Part of the pleasure of that is that I remembered the duck, and you remembered the duck too. So 
But with this book, I came to see that although humor wasn't always going to be appropriate or useful in an emotional sense, wit always is. Hmm. You know what I mean? So, so all the time I thought I was being, I was a good writer because I was good at jokes. Actually, I'm telling myself, you were a good writer because you were witty enough to remember the fictive situation and cash in with a joke. So maybe in this, the analogy might be an actor who's done nothing but comic roles. Can that actor do a serious role? Of course, because what he was doing in the comic role was being 100% in that cinematic moment and exploiting. So same thing. If it's a serious role, you got to be 100% in the moment and then exploit something like that. That's interesting. Like I feel like there is one of the essential qualities of jokes is they are immediately recognizable and that they solve some kind of puzzle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a language puzzle, sometimes a situational or a feelings puzzle. But they're also surprising in some way. They're also not the answer to the puzzle that you expected. But they're yeah. still, you know, they're still a really good answer to the puzzle. Right. And what you're describing in part is that that, at least what I hear you describing, is, is that that kind of structure is not unlike the basic structure of fiction, which is recognizing what the world is like and giving us something that solves our actual feelings and relationships in the world, something recognizable, but in a way that is not the, not just a literal representation. Yeah. Although I might even, I might even posit a slightly more technical explanation, which is when the reader is reading, she has her eyes on you, the writer, to see if you're taking her seriously or not. One of the ways she comes to understand that you don't is if, for example, in the middle of a scene, you change the setting without telling her because you forgot. It started out in a church and suddenly you're in a saloon. She goes, wait a minute, you don't you don't care about me at all because you're not paying attention to your own text. So one of the ways that you convey uh, intimacy and respect for the reader is to be acutely in mind of what you've told her already. This, now in terms of problem solving, I think what happens is you, you introduce some conceit or some convention into your story. Then, okay... You get to use that, but you have the responsibility of remembering that you introduced it, and you have to honor it through the whole book. And I think you have to not only honor it, but you have to escalate it. So, for example, in here, in this book, there's a scene early on where um, Lincoln is in the crypt with his son's body, and his son's spirit is kind of flitting around, really frustrated because the father is not, is looking at the body instead of him. I was writing that, and, you know, you do a lot of revision, and you try to see what potential you might the scene might have. And at one point, the kid, the spirit, leans into Lincoln. And, you know, drawing on many, many years of, of ghosts in movies, well, when a ghost leans on a body, it goes in. And then there was just this kind of intuitive idea that, that actually I drew from earlier stories of mine, but the idea was that when a ghost goes into a person, it, the ghost can read the person's mind. All right, so that was kind of cool to discover that. And, and you have this nice moment where the little boy actually is his dad for a couple of seconds and understands the pain he's in and all that. Okay, so you do that, and you're happy because it was a nice surprise that happened at speed. Well, okay, but then that means for the rest of the book, this quality we're talking about is wit, means that you have to remember that a ghost has that potential. And in a funny way, if the ghost, if some ghost or ghost doesn't escalate that potential, the reader's going to feel like you're not seeing her properly. Does this make sense? Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. It totally yeah. does, George. Yeah. So, so in other words, that means you, you know, you're trying to mine a fictive moment 
as much as it can. And then when you do that, you set up a convention that you have to honor. And I think that's what, for me, took the place of straightforward humor or jokes was the feeling that somehow the reader wouldn't bail on me if I continued to be that attentive to her. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with George Saunders, the writer. His latest book is Lincoln in the Bardo. It's available now. The characters who are in the world that Willie Lincoln is in, this world that is a kind of after-death, before-afterlife world with somewhat undefined rules and boundaries, at least to them, they are all there apparently because of some unresolved thing in their life. Like one character, for example, was married to a much younger woman and had kind of agreed to have a let's-just-be-friends relationship until they eventually found themselves falling in love, wanting to be physically intimate, and then he died before that happened. Wah-wah. Yeah. <laughs> there are these really powerful desires and interests in their lives that were left unresolved when they died. And I wonder if writing this book made you think about desires that you had. Yeah. Well, you know, desires and I think also uh, habits of clinging, you know, like for me, I I have had so much good fortune that I don't have, I mean, desires, I I don't, I kind of burn through a lot of stuff that I really wanted young and I, and, but what I have not come to grips with is just, you know, like, for example, the fondness that I have for my wife and my kids, if anything kept me, you know, undead, it would be that it would just be that I'm not done with that yet. I'm not ever going to be done with that. And then I suppose just, you know, just kind of that basic on a, on a lower level, just that basic fondness for self, you know, the idea that the world never existed until 1958 when I did. And, and uh, you know, I, I like that guy so much, <laughs> even though I kind of don't like him that much also. But in the book, mostly they're sort of dramatized examples of people who have regrets and who aren't quite done with this life. But I think all of us are in that mode, you know, that you've got, if nothing else, you've got a strong habit of thought, you know, like I'm pretty sure I'm going to fly home tomorrow from New York. And if I die right now, part of my mind is like, hey, I'm going to miss my flight, you know. <laughs> so, so, and also, you know, on another level, there's a lot of, I still have a lot of ambition energy and a lot of desire to keep writing. And so I think all those things would come into play. Although, to be honest, on the day when that plane thing was going on, I didn't even get to that place at all of, I don't think I even got to the place of going, I don't want to die. It was just a incredibly strong, visceral I don't know if it was terror, but it was like denial. That's all I – I mean, it, the thing went on for probably 10, 15 minutes. It seemed like an hour. But I never even got to the place where I'm like, oh, my God, I won't see my wife again. It, it didn't even – it was almost like you were so um, – there was so much adrenaline that your mind stopped working. It just – it wasn't working like a normal mind anymore. It was very sort of like animal energy. I don't want to finish this up without talking for a minute about the president because you wrote a really – uh, amazing piece about essentially going on the campaign trail or going to some presidential rallies for the New Yorker when the campaign was still on. Did you vote for the president? I voted for a president. <laughs> <laughs> no, I voted for Hillary, 100%. So I imagine that your feelings about that were pretty fixed when you headed out on to these rallies. For sure, yeah. What did you expect to find it, and and how is it different? Yeah, I mean, well, on those stories, what I tend to do is is just try to know what my opinion is before we, I go, and then say, okay, so this is what I'm starting with. 
dear world, please disabuse me of this notion if you can or reinforce it if you can. So in other words, you're kind of doing somewhere rhetorically in the piece, you're doing a full confession of what your ingoing prejudice is. And then as the story unfolds, you you adjust that prejudice. Or So, so my, my thought was just basically, I mean, from the first time I heard Trump speak, I didn't think he's sincere. I don't think he's, um, strangely, strange to say, I don't think he has an adequate experience of the world. He's been a rich celebrity for a long time, and I don't think he knows some really basic things about human beings that we know, that most people know, just from having been in the trenches. And that's okay, except it was also suffused with this kind of mean-spiritedness that I thought from the beginning was uh, role-playing. He he had a certain demographic in mind, and he knew how to get to him. Uh, And that was signaled in that early birther stuff, you know. So I, I went on the trail definitely not liking it, but the thing I was interested in was what, how could it be that it was so clear to me and so many of my liberal friends that this guy was not even a, was a non-starter, and yet he was picking up momentum at that time in the polls. So I, I really wasn't that interested in him, but I was interested in the people who were supporting him. What was the sort of intellectual or rhetorical basis for them to be so crazy about him? What did you find? Well, it was so confusing. You know, there, I mean, it was in the end, it was sort of like this big Willy Wonka machine, and I would be up nights going, okay, so if, you know, or like an algebraic equation, if... Someone doesn't like Hillary and is not a racist and is concerned with regulations and we turn the crank, we'll get a Trump supporter. You know, and there's a million variants of that. So I think at this point, what I think is essentially we're looking at a moment where we're reaping the the cost of about 30 years of of income income. Uh, inequality, where the rich have gotten so much richer just on autopilot, and the middle and the poor people have gotten hit harder and harder. That, okay, plus the rise of the right-wing media that I think in future years will be shocking when you see how quickly they came into play and how uh, cynically. Those two things combine, I think, to, to produce this phenomenon. It's not the case that everybody who voted for Trump was some variant of the Jode family poor and working class. That's not the case. So Bernie Sanders had his his finger on both those issues. So I think now we're now what we're seeing is there was a real sickness or maybe a, a sort of a two-headed sickness of the rise of a kind of right-wing sensibility and this income inequality. And there was a, the country had a big spasm and they turned to the wrong doctor, basically. Do you feel hopeful about any part of it? I feel hopeful about young people. You know, I teach at Syracuse and uh, also when I was on the story, I went to some Bernie Sanders rallies. And I think the I actually think objectively that young people are less full of it than people my age. They they were raised in the least generally, you know, in a less racist environment and a less homophobic environment. And, you know, I don't know how much of this is just getting older, but I look at myself in, in the 70s, you know, when I was in high school and the kind of ambient, snarky, suspicious, fearful stance that, that so many of us had. I don't pick up on that in my students. They, they are much more um, present and straightforward. Now, of course, th- there's a lot of distortion possible in that, but that's how it seems to me. So I, I am hopeful. I think what we're in right now is just a big, very regrettable step backwards into a, a vision of America that was never true. It was never hopeful. It's sort of this strange, in the piece I call it racial nostalgia, for a time that actually never existed. That, that America that was great before, that it was always complicated, and it was not great for a lot of people. But I'm hopeful that, I, that this is a hiccup and that this generation will pass, including me, and the people who are uh, younger now will, will just sort of look at our and go, why did they think that? Why were they so unkind to each other? And maybe they'll, uh, 
don't move past it. But generally, I think like being optimistic or pessimistic or hopeful or not hopeful, they're kind of manifestations of the same disease, which is our desire to go on autopilot. I mean, just dispositionally, I like to sound optimistic and I like to sound hopeful, mainly because then you don't have to think about it. You're just always... Marlo Thomas and that girl throwing your hat, or maybe that was Mary Tyler Moore throwing her hat in the air. But, you know, you're always the happy person who knows what to think of everything. And similarly with pessimism, if you can just get on a stance that says life is getting worse, that's very comfortable because you don't have to budge. But the more difficult position, I think, is to say that both optimism and pessimism are called for, and we just don't know. And unfortunately, till the day we die, we're going to have to continue to maintain that ambiguous posture that is so uncomfortable for human beings. George, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye again. You're always welcome. I really appreciate it. It's always fun, man. Thank you so much. I was looking forward to it for a long time. George Saunders, Lincoln in the Bardo is available now. Find it wherever you buy books. And I'm just going to be real with you. George Saunders is legit my hero in the world. If you haven't read any of his works, get with it, man. That guy's the best. Every week we wrap up Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. Dadhood makes a sound. It goes... down the street he says why am i soft in the middle now why am i soft in the middle the rest of my life is so hard i need a photo opportunity i want a shot of redemption don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard bone digger bone digger dogs in the moonlight far away i mean here's the thing every morning my five-year-old climbs into my station wagon i drive her to kindergarten at 7 45 my brain's still sore from waking up. I don't want to hear the news. I certainly can't deal with the thoughts that are in my head. And so I start flipping through the albums on my phone. And I end up pretty much every time reenacting this 30-year tradition. Three decades of pasty dads from cassette to CD to iPod to telephone playing Paul Simon's Graceland on the car stereo. There was a bright light. Shattering of shop windows, the bomb in the baby carriage was wired to the radio. These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is the long distance call. The way the camera follows us in slow mo. The way we look to a song. The way we look to a distant constellation that's dying in a corner of the sky. These are the days of miracle. I just want to hear something pleasant and engaging and lively and also with no swear words. <laughs> that is a real problem with the albums on my phone. Like that Kamaya record is not going to work with a five year old in the car. I'm going to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland, poor boys and Families, and we are going to Graceland. And my traveling bags are ghosts and empty sockets. I'm looking at ghosts and empties. But I have reason to believe 
Now, of course, I knew there were things that were weird about Graceland even back when I was in elementary school. The cultural tourism of what they used to call world music was and remains a little bit disquieting. I didn't know when I was six or whatever that Simon broke a cultural boycott to record in South Africa, but I could tell that there was something weird about white dudes standing in front of choruses of African guys. But I will say this. I have never been much of a folk music guy. Acoustic guitars and vocal harmonies I do not care that much about. But lay that lilting guitar back behind all those words and words and words and words that Paul Simon sings and... My defenses melt. People say I'm crazy. I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes, yeah. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of my shoes. Graceland is the perfect music for middle age. It moves you, but there's nothing heavy or hard. Horns, percussion, those beautiful backing harmonies, but nothing scary. A stew of polyrhythms, but no muddy guitars or cracking snares on the two and four. You know, you can sing along to it. So, I mean, what can I say? I'm 36. There's a five-year-old in the car. I'm a dad. Clichés are clichés for a reason, right? That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. By the way, uh, no new park updates this week. Things looking about normal in the park, although there are unusually high volumes of palm fronds in the water. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He has help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer at MaxFun, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Dan sent us some new music, so thank you for that, Dan. We appreciate it. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. A tip of the hat to them. Go check out those Go Team records. And if you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you are at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. It's uh, Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. The best from this week's show and more dumb Internet stuff we've been passing around the office. Behind-the-scenes pictures. Maybe we'll even tip you off to an interview we've got coming down the road. And uh, also, every segment on Bullseye these days now shared on our YouTube channel. So you can grab the audio, share it with a friend, uh, post it on your weblog, which is a type of website, like a personal journal website. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.